Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. My name is Melissa Kane. I'm a political analyst and attorney and a host of the Get Out the Bet podcast. Now it is my pleasure to introduce our special guest, who, as many of you know, is running to be California's next U.S. Senator. She's been representing California in Congress since 1998. She's the co-chair of the House Democratic Steering and Policy Committee, making her the highest-ranking African-American woman appointed to Democratic Party leadership. In Congress, she's on the Budget Committee and the Appropriations Committee, which oversee all federal government spending, so she's a good friend to have. Please welcome Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Thank you. <laughs> All righty, Congresswoman. We have so much to talk about. But before we get to that, uh, for the folks who live outside of your district and might not be as familiar with you, your personal story, and how you got to be uh, such a longtime serving Congresswoman, could you just start with your life and how some uh, a woman from Texas uh, ended up uh, ended up running to be uh, to be California's next senator. Well, thank you, Melissa, and thank all of you. Uh, it's really an honor to be here with you, and thank you for that question because it's so much a part of how I was born that informs what I do today. My mother, uh, when she was pregnant, she needed a C-section, and uh, the hospital would not admit her because she was black. And it took a while, and it was a long story about how she finally got into the hospital. But, um, you know, as unfortunately our history in this country has it, uh, her grandfather, my great-grandfather, was Irish. Uh, My great-grandmother worked for an Irish household, and he raped her. And out of that came my grandmother, who looked like she was white. So my grandmother, and this is what happened, she had to tell that hospital, this is my daughter, Uh, Some of you may have seen, I know Paul is here, and he knew my mother. She had green eyes, you know, she was very beautiful, but she was an African-American woman, and they wouldn't let her in. But my grandmother looked like she was white. So they finally let her in after my grandmother said, this is my daughter, let her in. She needed a C-section. They would not do anything but left her on a gurney. They would not provide any medical care. They would not tend to her. They did not examine her. They did nothing. Time went on, and my mother became delirious. Then she became unconscious, and uh, she needed the C-section because soon she was going to go into labor. Finally, uh, someone saw her and decided, this is much later, that they had to do something. And they put her on, she was on a gurney, and they rolled her in to the emergency room, and they didn't know what to do because it was too late for the C-section, and she was unconscious, and she was very sick. She was dying. And they decided to deliver this baby girl using forceps. And they pulled me out of my mother's womb. And I had a scar over my eye for years until a few years ago. And I share that story because everyone in El Paso still knows that story about how I almost did not get into this world. My mother almost died in childbirth. And so my fight for women's health and for justice and for the end of of discrimination and uh, inequality was from day one when I was born. And now... You can applaud. (laughs) (laughs) From day one. And fast forward to today, black women, okay, three times 
the death of white women in terms of uh, maternal mor mortality rates, infant mortality rates, off the scale, you would think by now, and these are black women of, of all economic backgrounds, still dying in childbirth. And so this is a big issue for me personally and for me on this campaign because I know it so well because of <laughs> my existence that almost didn't happen. So we moved from El Paso. My dad was a military officer. My grandfather was the first African-American letter carrier in El Paso. He spoke fluent Spanish. We grew up in an immigrant community. My dad uh, was in, um, in the Black Battalion, the 92nd Battalion in Italy, supporting the Normandy invasion. Of course, the military, when he was there, before I was born, was segregated. Uh, he fought in Korea, and he uh, was in Japan. My mother was one of the first 12 students in El Paso that uh, integrated the University of Texas at El Paso. It was Texas Western. Then the NAACP had a lawsuit, and they asked her to be a plaintiff. And so you can look at the historical records and find Mildred Parrish Massey as one of those black girls who integrated the University of Texas. So fast forward... So I came from a family and went to Catholic school. Schools were segregated. And um, my family was very determined not to participate in segregation. I mean, I remember drinking out of the water fountain, colored only, you know, the segregated uh, restaurants. My dad tried to take my mother and two sisters to eat at drive-in restaurants to the theaters, and they would say, I don't serve, and they'd use the N-word. And I hear my dad in his uniform. So all of that was taking place as a child. So we, so I went to Catholic school because they wanted us to have a good education and not participate in segregation, even though the black school was the best. So the sisters of Loretta taught me. They taught me a lot. <laughs> I didn't like them when they were my teachers because they were disciplinarians. I had to take logic. I had to diagram sentences. I mean, it was like, okay, uh, <laughs> take music, everything. So we moved to California, mainly for the public schools when I got out of the eighth grade. Lo and behold, we thought we were coming to a, a state where uh, we were free and uh, we could, you know, live as every American deserves to live. Moved to San Fernando and to Pacoima, California, in Southern California, and I wanted to be a cheerleader. And this story is really relevant now. And the criteria uh, for girls, uh, you had to meet this certain criteria to get through this selection process. Well, I didn't look like the girl that could get through this selection process. So I knew the NAACP. I was on work study then. I went to uh, Mr. Mance, who was head of the NAACP, and I said, can you help me? I really want to be a cheerleader, and I'll never be able to because I don't meet the criteria. So bottom line, the NAACP looked at the conditions and the parameters and the framework in which I had brought this to them. They said, yeah, you're right. Uh, black girls will never make it, nor any girl of color. So they helped me organize the student body. They went to the administration. And I mean, to tell you, it, there was a lot of pushback because they wanted the selection process to stay intact. But we finally got the uh, campus to agree to having an election for cheerleaders. Now, mind you, I was 15. And so the election was held. I tried out in front of the student body. And guess what? I won. <laughs> I won. <laughs> that was my first election at age 15, <laughs> my very first election. But 
also a Japanese-American girl won, a, a Latina won. So that dis disrupted that system that shut out girls of color. And I was able to do that. And that's how I've been working as an elected official <laughs> since day one, trying to make, make this country and this state do right by everybody. And uh, that's part of who I am. So fast forward to this election now. Remember the cheerleading story? This is something that it, I've talked about this publicly. Sometimes when I do, people kind of shudder, but it's, it's a fact. Many people come up to me and say, Barbara, we know you. Uh, you'd be a great senator. We know you've delivered for your district and for California. You're experienced. All these great things. But you know, Adam Schiff just looks like a senator. Okay. <laughs> So remember that cheerleading story. Remember, I won that cheerleading story, and I'm going to win this race because I'm going to make sure that we dismantle all these unfortunate uh, rules on campaign finance where, you know, that's still a barrier for <laughs> black women and, and women in general. <laughs> so same story. <laughs> Oh, wow. And so uh, around this time, you you were very young, though, also when you uh, got married and had started having children. Can you talk a little bit about how that has informed yeah. your experience as well? Yeah. I got married when I was 16. <laughs> Nobody knew it. It was a secret. And uh, a lot happened during that time. Uh, I ended up, uh, and I was the cheerleader, but, you know, I, w I was pregnant. And uh, I talked about this publicly, which was really hard for me to do had an abortion. I just recently, last year, talked about it when the Texas laws started, the restrictive laws started coming down. It was just too much for me to handle because my mother and I made that decision that uh, it would be best for myself to have an abortion. And that's the way it should be now. It's the decision that a human being, a person makes with whomever she wants to talk with. But it's nobody else's business. So I never talked about it because it was nobody else's business. But I, she, she sent me to Mexico, to Juarez, to her friend who lived in El Paso. And I'll never forget this. It was illegal. This was before Roe. It was illegal in California. It was illegal in Texas. It was illegal in Mexico. And so I was terrified because also the, uh, the most common reason and form of death for black women at that point was uh, septic abortions. Okay, so understand this. I'm terrified. I'm, uh, my first plane ride to, back to El Paso, uh, my mother's friend, God bless her soul, who was a Latina, she just passed away last year, took me across the border to a back alley. It was about 10.30 at night, and I knew I could be arrested. Just like now, these states are criminalizing people who have abortions and the providers. And uh, I remember that, that um, moment. I remember that back alley. I remember the office, the clinic. It was a clinic. It was a back alley clinic. And I survived, but a lot of black women didn't. But I was terrified just like women are now because I knew going across the border I could be arrested. I knew leaving the airport from El Paso coming back to California I could be arrested. I, know, I knew landing in California I could be arrested because it was illegal. And so I co-chair the Pro-Choice Caucus, and one of the issues for me is reproductive freedom and reproductive justice, because we have got to make sure that we put into federal law, codify into law, the Women's Health Protection Act, so that we can have abortion access as part of the law of the land. Uh, 
We've got to do this. We're going to come back to your story here in just a minute, but I do want to to, to dig into the the abortion law mm-hmm. question because there is some criticism around why hasn't why haven't the Democrats, when they've had control of all three branches of government, gone ahead and done this ahead of time, sort of before mm-hmm. the Dobbs decision came down? Are you do you feel like the Democrats waited too long or do you feel like it really wasn't necessary until now? What's your take on, on the Quite time? frankly, nobody believed it could happen until a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And then we started. Uh, you know, this is like this is the first time a constitutional right has been taken away. Uh, who thought we would have to fight the same fights that we fought 50 years ago? Nobody. But we saw this coming a few years ago, and so we got ready. And a couple of things I want to mention. One is the Hyde Amendment. I, uh, you know, I worked for our beloved Ron Dellums for many years. And Henry Hyde, you remember Ron, he was a great statesman. And I was a staffer, a chief of staff, when Henry Hyde instituted the Hyde Amendment. And he said that he wanted to make sure that no woman had access to abortions. But if he couldn't do it, uh, for everyone, because this was after Roe, then he wanted to make sure low-income women couldn't access abortion care by restricting Medicaid for the use of um, abortions, for abortions. And so the Hyde Amendment has been in the appropriations bill since the 70s. Understanding that, I, when I was elected to Congress, I made it my mission to repeal the Hyde Amendment. No Democrat would touch that. It was like, Barbara, don't talk about that. The Hyde Amendment is a law that, you know, these low-income women, these black, brown women, uh, you know, they're not a political force. You know, um, don't, don't touch that. So I said, okay. So as I do, I organized. And I, <laughs> the All Above All Coalition, these were some phenomenal, primarily young people of color, men and women. It was multiracial, multigenerational, but young people led this. And they did the organizing around the country. And they came back and they asked me to introduce it. I said, well, let's look at what's taking place uh, with regard to the Democrats. And we weren't quite there yet in terms of the polling data. So I said, okay, let's take one more year and do it. So they went out there and they polled, they educated the public about how the Hyde Amendment was discriminatory and in fact brought it back. And I went to uh, our leadership then and it was finally like, oh, Barbara, okay, okay, leave us alone. <laughs> okay, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? So I said, I want to repeal the Hyde Amendment. And they said, oh, my God. But finally, they saw the polling data, and they saw that people did not believe we should discriminate against women because they were low income. And I introduced the each act. Everyone thought it would maybe have two or three co-sponsors. But I introduced it with 30 co-sponsors, including the chair of the Judiciary Committee, and now I have about 165 co-sponsors. I talked to the president about it, and he now says he would sign law, a law to repeal the Hyde Amendment. And so we've built this support over the years, but it's been these outside groups who have really educated the public. And also, finally, I'll just say on the Hyde Amendment, again, seeing this coming, this is just part of what we saw coming. The appropriations bills are the bills that carry the Hyde Amendment, and that is just like automatic every year, Hyde Amendment, okay, Hyde Amendment. So finally, when we were in the majority and when our great speaker, Nancy Pelosi, was speaker, 
we said, okay, it's time. So we were able to take the Hyde Amendment out of the appropriations bills. So it passed twice without the, appro- without the Hyde Amendment in it. Got it to the Senate. Of course, they put it back in. So we're still working at it, but we're building it. And when I get to the Senate, we're going to take care of that also and <laughs> get that done. <laughs> so we've been anticipating this, but not the Dobbs decision as it went down. Uh, And so to get back to your story, uh, I found an old Chronicle article about your piano career, about your talent. And one of the, I guess one of the things you learned uh, begrudgingly from from the sisters was how to play piano. And that became a source of scholarships and Mm -hmm. even a European tour. Talk about that. Well, I uh, actually took piano lessons from the, uh, from Mrs. Nixon, who had a daughter who had Down syndrome. Her husband was one of the leaders in the civil rights movement, Dr. L.A. Nixon. She came to our house every Saturday, and I was the only one who would practice the piano. My sister said, forget it. But my (laughs) grandfather, I mean, it was like I wanted to please my grandfather. So I learned how to play the piano, uh, mainly at home with Mrs. Nixon. But I learned a lot about Down syndrome, being with Annie every week, too. And I'm really... Down syndrome is another issue that I, I deal with, but you know she taught me a lot. But I learned the piano, and when I and I was an accomplished uh, pianist. When I graduated from high school, of course I played at graduation. I made a record, and I won the Rotary Club Music Award and the Bank of America R- Music Award. <laughs> And when our beloved, the late Michael Morgan, found out, he wanted me to, and my mother was still alive, and that was my only, my only regret is she kept saying, I still have the same piano I had when I was three years old. Barbara, get back to your piano. I want to hear you play that piano. And so she and Michael, because she loved going to the symphony, and she and Michael conspired that they were going to get me to at least practice with Michael to do one opening night at the Oakland Symphony. So I saw Michael, <laughs> and he kept asking me. He, he said, look, I've been walking around with this music in the trunk of my car for five years now. <laughs> Aren't you ready for me to come by? And I never did it. But uh, one day, <laughs> but I love music, and I was, I was very, very good. <laughs> I was very good. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, do you still play at all, or are you you're, you're... – Oh, hey. I mean, the piano still closed. It's where it was when my mother passed away eight years ago. It's still there. (laughs) One day, same piano, but no, I haven't. I don't have time, but I love playing. I could play all kinds of music, but I just, and I love music, and I love art, and I love decorating. I love color. I I just, that side of me, I have an artsy side. (laughs) Well, you got to find a way to get that out. We got it. I imagine Congress doesn't allow much of no time. Much of that. Oh, please. Uh, <laughs> but that's why you need that other part of life. You need that. Other well, thing. then soon thereafter, you became a mom, isn't? Yeah. And 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 sort of got to experience, you know, some really had some really difficult times economically. Yeah, yeah. After I um, graduated from high school, I went to England. My former husband was in the Air Force, and so I actually lived in England in Banbury for two years. And when I lived in England, uh, that's when I became clear about who I was. And I was not a minority in this country, in the world. I was part of the majority of the world that looked like me. I met people from Africa, the Caribbean, the Middle East, from everywhere. And all of a sudden, it's like, you know, the minority mentality was gone. (laughs) That was very empowering to be there. I was in London every weekend, and my son son was born in South Rice of Tony, Tony Lee. Uh, And... uh, it was quite a two years, and 
my former husband, he was in the Air Force. His serial number, 193 And, um, yeah, came back to Southern California after two years in England, had another child, Craig. And then we moved up here to uh, San Francisco. My dad was lieutenant colonel by then, about to retire after a few years. Uh, he was head of the communications department at the Presidio. Mm-hmm. And my former husband uh, was a techie, and he, and he uh, hired him up here as a civilian. And so we lived at the Presidio. And then um, we moved to uh, Geneva Towers. I lived there. What? (laughs) And then he got a job at IBM, and we moved down to San Jose. And, uh, yes, and then after that, uh, things happened. And he was was a really good father, good husband. He's passed away recently, last year, actually. Uh, And then I moved back to San Francisco, lived at 250 Page Street. But then... Another relationship that was pretty bad happened. Uh, thank God my kids, you know, their grandmother took care of them during... And again, I know what domestic violence is all about. I carried the first Violence Against Women Act uh, in California when I was in the state legislature, and I understand that very well. Uh, that's why I work so hard for women in terms of violence prevention, because it's really... It's very dangerous and serious, and we have to stop the battering. And uh, I know that very well. And so, you know, that was not the kid's daddy, though. That was not the kid's daddy. Oh, okay. Sorry, that wasn't clear. No, that was somebody else. That, yeah. that, that I read. But but you were able to get, uh, get your education. Yep. Quickly. Ended up getting out of that relationship. Went to Mills College. Uh, applied for public assistance, food stamps, Medi-Cal. And I raised those two little boys. And actually, why another issue, housing is such a big deal for me because then I had no money. I wanted to get a good education, and I wanted to take care of my kids, and I, want, and I was very active in the community, and I wanted to buy a house. And there was a program, I think it was the 235 program that HUD had, which allowed a person like myself to buy a house. Uh, and it was nineteen thousand four hundred seventy-five dollars in <laughs> in Maxwell Park. Then that was a lot of money, but it helped me. It, the, whatever the program was, helped with down payment, helped with my payments, and you know that one home that I purchased in terms of the equity helped me move forward, take care of my kids, send them to college, start a small business, and and just keep moving forward. Now. The affordability crisis, young people, when I, and so many young people support me uh, in, this ele- in this campaign, they can't even understand and visualize what, what buying a house means because the cost of living is so expensive here. And the affordability crisis, I mean, the average income in my district uh, as an a- for an African-American family of four is probably less than 50000 And the average cost of a house is, what, close to a million dollars. And that's in Oakland. So we've got to deal with housing uh, in a big way, and I am in this election and this campaign. But that's part of my my history, is what happened when I was at Mills College and how I was able to buy that house and <laughs> and meet Shirley Chisholm, the first African American woman elected to Congress, and become involved in her campaign. She was the first African American, the first woman to run for the presidency, and she was one of yes, give Shirley Chisholm. <laughs> And so the rest is history. 
<laughs> so, uh, so after that, you worked for Ron Dellums, who you who you've explained, and then eventually you ran for uh, you ran for the Assembly in mm-hmm. 1990, then the State Senate in 1996, and then Congress in 1998. Mm-hmm. And I do want to stop for just a minute to, to allow you to talk a little bit about your uh, your experience in state government prior yeah. to going to Congress, because I know it's something it, it's harder to follow uh, sometimes. <laughs> so Sacramento can seem very opaque. <laughs> well. When I was when I decided to run, it wasn't Barbara Lee deciding to run. It was when Elihu Harris uh, decided to run for mayor, and there were several people in the community who told me because by then I had a business, and I was doing a lot of fundraising for Ron also. But it was after you worked for Ron Dellums, why would you want to run for anything? Because you've been worked for the best, <laughs> and so. But and Paul knows Supervisor John George. He and a, a minister, Reverend Larkweath, they kept calling me and said, "You've got to run for this seat. We need a progressive black woman. We've never there's never been an African American woman north of Los Angeles in the California Assembly or Senate until I ran. Mm-hmm. Never, mm-hmm. ever. And then until recently with Mia Bonta, since I left, and we still don't have an African American woman or man in the Senate from Northern California." So, so John George uh, kept calling me, calling me, calling me, and I said, "No, I've got a business. I have my mental health background. I'm trying to, you know, I had a mental health center, community mental health center, and the whole bit." And so finally, they circled the wagons, and uh, John George, I'll never forget him. Those some of you may have known him, but he was crossing the street. I'll never forget. And he says, "You've got to run. You've got to run for the seat. Uh, we need you." And the next day, he died. The next day he died. Yeah. So it so was kind of, I had to <laughs> I had to do it. But it was not, it was kind of like, oh my goodness. But now I'm really happy I did because when I was elected to the California Assembly, Pete Wilson was the governor. And if you look at my record in the Assembly and Senate, I got probably more bills signed into law than any other freshman member. And no one thought I could do it when who came in in the, in the early 90s. No one thought I could do it because I was so progressive. And they said, a, a uh, right-wing governor like Pete Wilson will never work with you. Well, bottom line is he signed over 70, 67 of my bills into law, some major bills. And he uh, really respected me and I respected him, but we went at it. But the secret, and and now I, as I look back, which I still do now, you have as a progressive, you start out, you're not tinkering around the edges. You start out saying, "This is the right thing to do. This is going to affect people in the way that their lives are going to be made better. This is how we ensure development and diplomacy rather than uh, military first option." I mean, you have to stake out the turf mm-hmm. because, especially now with the MAGA extremists in, in Congress, well, Pete Wilson was pretty out there. So he was out there, right? So he started here, I started there. And we had the ability to negotiate. If I started here in a very kind of moderate place, then there's nowhere to go but to the right. And so we had a relationship where we nego- I mean, I did the children's health program. I set up the Alameda Health Alliance. I, there was a, and it took me two or three years with, with Gray, who was Lieutenant Gray Davis, Lieutenant Governor, but I uh, enhanced uh, penalties for those blocking access to abortion clinics. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took a long time, but he finally signed it into law. I had the California School Hate Crimes Bill, which barred discrimination against the LGBTQ community and kids. It took 
I think he vetoed it two times and I figured out how to get it done. And I got it done by organizing some people that he knew. And so on the third time, Pete Wilson signed that into law. And so I, (laughs) (laughs) so it was quite challenging, but that helped me get ready for what I'm doing in Congress now (laughs) in the house. And so you ran in 1998 Mm -hmm. for Congress. Mm -hmm. And what was the biggest surprise? What's the biggest difference between DC house of representatives Mm -hmm. and Sacramento <laughs> well, aside from like the food and when I was in the in the California Senate, I went in as chair of a committee. I chaired the Housing and Land Use Committee of the State Senate, like that. For being forty out of you know being one out of forty was pretty cool. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and and still, uh, Senate dist- California Senate districts are larger. You have more constituents in the State Senate than members of Congress have. So it was it was quite interesting, and I was able to do a heck of a lot. And so I go to Congress thinking, I'm going to chair a committee. <laughs> and I said, oh, wait a I should remember what I worked for Ryan. I know good and well. So it was like, why can't I get this bill passed? <laughs> it's like, come on. And, and my staff was kind of like, chill out, you know. <laughs> got time. But I went and I was on the Foreign Affairs Committee as well as then was the Banking. Now it's Financial Services Committee. And so it was really a, a shock for me to have to, like, I won't say wait my turn, but have to understand patience a little bit more uh, and how to negotiate uh, and how amendments are so important. You may not get your entire bill passed, but if you take sections of your bill like I did during COVID and put it into the Recovery Act, you know, you may be as impactful. And so there were, I had to learn very quickly how to get results if I didn't get my full bill passed. And also I had to learn, and I learned this very quickly because of the HIV AIDS pandemic, that uh, I had to do something as it relates to HIV and AIDS, both here in America and throughout the the planet, especially in Africa. And then, uh, well, President Clinton was president, so I introduced Bill a bill, the Global AIDS and Tuberculosis Relief Act. And it was really hard to get support for it, but I finally got support. And that established the Global Fund. You hear the Global Fund now. Well, that was my bill that established that. Wow. And he signed it into law. Wow. So fast forward now, George Bush is elected. So <laughs> I'm thinking of Pete Wilson. <laughs> How did I do this? So I go to the White House with the Black Caucus when he's elected. And uh, Eddie Bernice Johnson, who was the chair of the caucus, she says, okay, Barbara, we each had what we wanted to talk about. I said, I want to talk to him about HIV and AIDS and all the people dying in America and uh, throughout the world. And everybody looked at me, okay, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And I wore a beaded button. And so when it was my turn, he listened and uh, he, Colin Powell was there and Condoleezza Rice. And he looked, he says, what work with her? Let's see what we could do. And after the meeting, we stood in line to uh, get a photo. And he looked at this beaded button and wanted to know what it was. I took it off and gave it to him. And was ma- I said, this was made, Mr. President, by women in South Africa who are raising money uh, for treatment for, some, for people who are dying. And I saw President Bush a few months ago, and we talked kind of about that moment. But bottom line is, I introduced the bill. It's called PEPFAR, the President Emergency Program for Emergency Raise. You, you know PEPFAR. Well, that was my my legislation. And I had to negotiate with him. I had to negotiate with Henry Hyde, who was chair of the committee, 
that I was on. It came through Foreign Affairs, and I had to deal with Chris Smith, some of the real anti-abortion folks. I mean, it was a hard negotiation, and we're in the middle of this again to reauthorize, and I'm dealing with some of the same dynamics, although on my side are Senator Frist and President Bush <laughs> trying to get the MAGAs <laughs> like Chuck, like, uh, Chuck um, Roy to do that. And uh, they won't, but I think we're going to get it done anyway. I have a way to figure it out. <laughs> we're going to get it done. <laughs> Between us. How are we getting this? We're going to get it. Uh, the, now you are, I think for, for many people, most famous for a bill you didn't vote for. Uh, which was the authorization for military use of force in Iraq. You had the single no vote. Yeah. So um, I wanted to ask you about that now that we're sort of down the road. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had a, like, an I told you so party or <laughs> or ever, like, <laughs> had that, you know, moment of, ha, uh, back with those folks or um, or, or sort of how, how you feel about that and how your mm-hmm. colleagues feel about that. Yeah. Have any of them come to you and said, I wish I'd voted no with you yeah. or things like that? First person who's, and this was a blank check, 60 words that should have never passed three days after the horrific uh, attack. It was uh, set the stage for forever war. It removed the Congress from any kind. We're missing an action on any kind of authorization to use force anywhere in the world because it gave over our authority, which is the people's voice. So having said that, a lot of death threats, a lot. It was it was bad. Still stuff bubbles up. It was bad. Uh, People called me a traitor. Rudy Giuliano, Giuliano in the. Veterans Day Parade, uh, walked with my opponent with a sign, a stick with me smiling, World Trade Towers burning in the background saying, Barbara Lee hates America. I'm watching TV and seeing all this and all the haters come out after me. I mean, it it was really bad. And I realized then that people don't really understand that essence to our democracy is the right, part of the essence of our democracy is the right to dissent. That's, you know, you don't have to go along to get along, and you don't have to go along if you think something is wrong. And I thought it was wrong. So fast forward, I've been trying to repeal that (laughs) for 20 years. Now, Chip Roy and I, the MAGA extremist Republicans, we're working together to repeal it. And I have all... Yeah, for their own reasons. But I have, <laughs> let me tell you, the Democrats now, and that's that's my, you know, I feel good because the public has weighed in over the years and said, this is wrong. You know, we spent over a trillion dollars. We sent our brave troops to war. And my dad was the first one to call me, tell me that was the right vote. Mm-hmm. You know, the military officer, Colonel Tut. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just been like hard work to educate people because the public's been there. And so now I got it last year, the repeal of the Iraq authorization uh, over to the Senate. Senator Kane picked it up. We got it off the Senate floor with 10 Republicans. So it's back now in the House because we are in a new Congress. And so we're working right now, like I say, with, with Chip Roy and some of the really extreme Republicans. And we're putting our coalition together to get it passed again in the House. The president issued, which was really, um, for me, Full circle, he issued um, a statement of administration policy. It's called a SAP when I was taking it to the floor last year, which means uh, we support it. The White House wants to sign this into law, so members vote for it. So it was really kind of great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> 
So aside from that, um, and you've talked about some of the legislation that you've pushed through, are there is there a, an amendment or a law that you can think of that is really sort of your your proudest moment of like sort of an affirmative thing that you've you've sponsored and gotten passed that that you regard as kind of your signature most proud. Well. Well, I think uh, the global, all my global HIV AIDS legislation is pretty. That's pretty great. <laughs> we've, saved, I, we've saved over 25 million lives, and it's been bipartisan over the years, and I've had to hold it all together oh, because wow. only maybe 20, 25 percent of members of Congress are serving now who were here, who were there then. So I've had to go one by one by one. Senator Frist has had to go one by one by one. So President Bush has had to go one by one by one. <laughs> so I think that, but I've done uh, quite a bit on legislation. That, the COVID Community Care Act, for example. I mean, we were able, and I'm on the Appropriations Committee, and I was able to get millions of money, millions of dollars targeted, which was a big fight, targeted to communities of color and, and communities where the pandemic was the greatest. And, you know, there was a reluctance for a while in certain communities, in the black community especially, to trust the messages, to trust what was taking place because of systemic racism in the healthcare system. We know that. Look at my birth and what happened then. So we understand. Look at all the experiments that have been done. Mm -hmm. And so we um, were leery. But I said, no, we're going to have resources in this Recovery Act, to hire trusted messengers in black and brown communities and on native reservations where people are dying disproportionately, and we've got to save their lives. So it, however we do it, we're going to do it. So I was able to get millions of dollars through the COVID community. My bill, I took parts of it and put it into the Recovery Act and saved lots of lives doing that. And that's just very recent. Wow. And, I, and we expanded community clinics, and I was able to uh, target the money everywhere where we needed to target it. So wow. I was pleased about that. Nobody knows that, but now you guys do. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so that was cool. I do a lot, but nobody knows. Well, that brings us to the uh, to the Senate race. I do want to get into that a bit. Um, but, uh, but I want to start by... Uh, throwing you a huge softball and just uh, asking um, why you give us your your pitch for why you should be the next senator for the state of California. Well, I think that my experience, my ability to negotiate, legislate, appropriate, my understanding of the world in which we live. I mean, I, I have a, a large national security perspective and foreign policy perspective and how it relates to our domestic priorities. Mm. And I want to fill a lot of the gaps that are in the Senate. Uh, first, you know, the representation, representation matters. You have zero black women in the Senate. Now, I am experienced. I'm progressive. I've delivered for my district. I've delivered for California. Why not? <laughs> I mean, it's like <laughs> to fill in the gaps, I'm, you know, since 1789. And this is something that you, a lot of people don't know. Since 1789, there have been uh, two African-American women serving a total of 10 years. 1789 was when the first House and Senate went into session. Uh, that's Senator Carol Mosley-Braun and uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, a total of 10 years. And so the perspective and the lens and the experience is needed in the Senate. And uh, I believe that I have that, and I can really bring this perspective and this strength 
and the ability to um, educate the public and to be one of a hundred who can sound the alarm, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if things are going south. <laughs> and really uh, take that experience as a progressive black woman into the Senate, because that's a gap that has got to be filled. Uh, well, has there, so Governor Newsom has said that if the current Senator Feinstein steps down, um, that he will appoint a black woman to that spot. Have you been in communication at all with anyone from his office about may potentially being that appointee if, <laughs> no. if it were to happen? No, I haven't. Uh, last year, of course, uh, during the whole process when, and, and Alex is a good friend of mine, so he's, he's a great senator too. And there was a move though, to make sure that either myself or Mayor Bass were appointed, but we supported Alex Padilla. And so the governor said that he would, if he, if he had the opportunity, he would appoint an African-American woman. But I'm running in this race uh, and I'm going to run, I'm running to win. And, you know, oh, and that's sure. what I'm doing. And I don't want to interfere in his process or what he, whatever decision, if he had to make that decision, what he would do. I mean, so. Okay. That's. <laughs> so, okay. That's, so no text messages. No, 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 no. Hey. Look, I don't have time. <laughs> I'm, I'm raising money and putting my campaign together and, and doing what I need to do to get people to get to know me. So they'll vote for me. <laughs> so I want to talk about your campaign for a minute. So it looks like um, we don't have many polls. I think I only saw three polls mm -hmm. that are sort of um, public. Although if you have any numbers mm -hmm. you'd like to share, please do. Uh, the most recent PPIC poll put you basically a, a pretty much a tie with uh, mm -hmm. Katie Porter and Adam Schiff as mm -hmm. well. Although, um, and I do want to take a minute to, um, to the Congresswoman's horn here for a second, because um, despite having not raised nearly as much money as them, the Congresswoman has the endorsements of Mayor London Breed, uh, even Ro Khanna, who is was rumored to maybe running in this race, but seems to have been have endorsed you as well, uh, and including Fiona Ma. I'm trying to think of other Bay Area luminaries um, who have uh, who have stepped up. Rob Bonta, um, Malia Cohen, and just a real litany of uh, of important. Um, of important mm -hmm. folks who have already come out and support and supported you. Also, uh, I looked in your donor list and I saw a couple of folks. I saw uh, Michael Tubbs, former mayor of Stockton, who is a uh, who's in, an important leader. Also, I have to say this: Marta Kaufman. If y'all are Friends fans, <laughs> like Marta Kaufman and David Crane, like that's on every episode. She created Friends, uh, and she is supporting Barbara Lee. And also, finally, I saved the best for last: Jackson Brown. Uh, Google it, kids. It's important. Uh, the musician also has donated to your, to your campaign. So there is this um, extraordinary level of support, uh, and again, great polling as far as we can tell um, for for your campaign. And and as someone who has been running and very successfully, you know, winning elections for office for so long. Uh, how have you been able to create a, a statewide or, you know, even national presence? Melissa, I have, uh, and I'm very proud, it's five of the eight, uh, eight statewide offices, constitutional officers uh, supporting me. I have many, many mayors, Mayor Bass in Los Angeles, and actually the mayor um, of Irvine, uh, which is where one of my opponents live, endorsed me. I had a fundraiser in her district. I have quite a bit of support in Orange County. And uh, for me, it's this is about uh, putting people together, having a coalition. It's a people-powered movement. And these elected officials who've endorsed me, they're recognized as leaders. 
And they uh, are helping me not only raise money, but they're helping me uh, put together the voters that I need to win. And we have a clear path to victory. And no one says it's going to be easy. But uh, with, uh, I mean, I'm not raising as much money as my opponents. You know, we have got to get to public financing of campaigns, please. We, and we've got to overturn Citizens United. <laughs> I'm telling you. And so I raised money the way, and I've raised money for the party. I've raised, let me tell you, in leadership, the DCCC dues for other candidates, especially for women and women of color. I've been raising money over and over and over again, giving it away so we could build our party and be in the majority. And so now Barbara Lee is running. <laughs> and <back>. people <laughs> are supporting me. And, of course, it's a, it's, it's uh coming and we're going to raise enough money to win. It won't be what my opponents raise, but Karen Bass, $9 million. Caruso, $100 million. Guess who's mayor of Los Angeles? Mayor Karen Bass. So, <laughs> so it's how you relate to people, how you put it together, and all the polls show that uh, if people don't know me, once they get to know me, our internal polls track the uh, external polls. Once they hear my experience, who I am, what I've done, what I intend to do, and especially young people, the Gen Zers, and mm -hmm. have the support of uh, the San Diego Young Democrats. I have an army of young people so supporting me, and they tell me, they say, we know you, uh, and you are out, you've been out there on climate change and on all these issues for us. And they know I'm not running in this election, in this campaign for me. I'm running for them. And they trust me. And all the polls show that, that the numbers triple when you uh, poll young people. And so we're putting it together. It's a different kind of campaign, but it's going to be a winning campaign. And I hope you all will support me. <laughs> I <laughs> Okay, so I've got here... You can check my website, barbaraleeforca.com. Okay, they, they always remind me, barbaraleeforca.com. Um, was Barbara Lee taken? Because that would be weird. It was Barbara Lee for Senate was taken. There was a bunch of stuff going on. It was... Oh. Which wasn't nice. Oh, that, uh, oh, don't go there. Should be exposed, but, you know, so it's Barbara Lee for CA. That makes sense. Okay. Uh, what is, as uh, we've got some audience questions here, what's the best piece of professional advice that you have received and who was it from? From my mother, my late mother. And it was um, be yourself. Hmm. Uh, don't be phony. Uh, fight hard, not only for yourself, but for everybody who needs your help. Yeah. Wow. And it was simple. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And she told me, you know, over and over again that uh, I'm here for a purpose. She wanted me to slow down. <laughs> She'd be <laughs> upset with me gearing up even more so. But um, she was a woman who constantly uh, helped me out. She uh, helped me in my first campaign. My mother registered people to vote in nightclubs and bars, her and my sister in Oakland. They it's brought in people into my campaign who are my, my voters, nobody else's. <laughs> and my mother was brilliant. That so. is brilliant. I mean, who's going to say no? I don't care who you are. If you come up to me and say, my kid is running for office, like, yeah. all right, all yeah. right. That's what she did. I have to sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was a sense of justice that she, you know, always you know, uh, imparted to me, but also 
be careful. She was worried about me all the time. Be careful, watch your back. She knew all the threats and she knew what was taking place and she always was worried. Moms, the best. Uh, What is the most challenging issue facing Democrats in this upcoming election? The the cult uh, of the MAGA extremist Republicans, who uh, who are who believe that uh, Donald Trump is above the law, and what has happened now with the Republican Party, unfortunately, is that um, because of its leader, it's become fairly lawless, and you see what's taking place now, and that's that's a challenge to get uh, people to understand that uh, who he is and how he wants to destroy our democracy. And we can just see what his Supreme Court appointees have done, and you can see what he is doing day after day and what he did during his administration. We haven't even built up our embassies around the world. I mean, he's close to Putin. You know, he uh, wants to be um, a a leader that's... uh, a non-democratic, autocratic leader, and that's a real danger. And we have to be careful, and we have to vote. And I'm going to tell you, when Hillary won the popular vote, remember that? She won the popular vote. It was about 80,000 votes that um, she needed, and we would not be where we are today. And so the challenge we have is to make sure that people understand that they have to vote this time because so much is at stake, uh, and our democracy is key to that, and so that's the challenge, uh, and not giving up. So many people, the challenge, are hopeless because they see what has happened, and they don't think that the government works for them anymore. And so it's like, I'm not going to vote. Let them take it over, and, and that's dangerous and worries me, but we're not going to let that happen. And you have you even have a lawsuit against the uh, against President Trump mm-hmm. that you're that you're pursuing. You want to yeah. tell the uh, audience? About oh that? yeah, this before the, the um, January sixth committee, the NAACP decided to file a lawsuit and ask me to be a plaintiff in it because I was on the floor of Congress on January sixth, and uh, it was terrifying. I almost didn't get out of there. And so the NAACP decided that uh, this was time, again, before the um, January 6th committee to introduce, to bring forth a lawsuit against Donald Trump, the Proud Boys, and the Oath Keepers. And Giuliani Giuliani was part of them, but that was thrown out in the lower court. And so uh, Benny Thompson was the lead plaintiff, but when he became chair... Uh, in probably February or March of the January 6th committee, he had to step down, and I was appointed lead lead plaintiff in that lawsuit. And the lawsuit, uh, the basic uh, tenets of the lawsuit is Donald Trump does not have immunity for what he did on January 6th, that he is not above the law, and that uh, their um, injunctive relief we're seeking because we do not want this to happen again. This was a threat to our democracy. It was an attempted coup, and they almost did it. So we want to make sure they're held accountable and there are damages that have to be paid because people were harmed during that period. And so we got through the first uh, district court, and, of course, Donald Trump 
filed an appeal. We're in the appeals court now. It's a civil suit, so it has nothing to do with the criminal case or the, you know, all these indictments, but it's a civil <laughs> suit. So we're waiting to see if uh, we move forward uh, with the case uh, to the next next court. But you're, you did win at the district level. Yeah, we won at the district level, yeah, and then they appealed it. And so it's in the appeals court now. Well, I, I have to ask you this, and I hate to because you're such a nice person, but mm-hmm. you are in politics, so mm-hmm. you're you're tough too. So I'll, I'll go ahead and ask. Um, this is an audience question as well. As a voter, I'm concerned about term limits and age limits. Mm-hmm. Um, you are 77. Mm-hmm. Diane Feinstein's 90. Um, you know, what do you make of mm-hmm. questions of term limits and age yeah. limits, and people who might say, "Hey, you know, we wanted yeah. to get somebody even younger into yeah. the Senate." And of look, it's, it's no secret my age. <laughs> so, it's, but right, what I think and what I tell people, and and I'm really proud of pe- young people, especially because they understand how experience matters at this point. You need somebody who's going to fight and who can deliver on day one, and that's Barbara Lee. And we're at that point in our history where uh, people, and of course, age is a factor. It's going to be a lot of issues are factors, but uh, we have to be forthright with the voters and let them make their own decisions. But I think right now, in this moment, you need somebody who's experienced, who's been there, who knows how to fight, who knows how to protect our democracy, who knows how to deliver for California, and who knows how to make people, how to make lives better for people, and who can see people that other candidates don't see. I mean, 20 million people. People out of the 40 million in California are one paycheck away from poverty, and I understand those issues. So the issues are important. The experience is important. Term limits uh, for you know for voters, and they'll make their own decision. But hopefully, they'll understand how important that is. Secondly, on term limits, I don't support term limits for elected officials because in our democracy, people have the right to elect who they want. Even Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene? I mean, <laughs> really? <laughs> really? <laughs> no, I'm really? I'm but I'm just saying, this is a democracy and that's fundamental. So, term limits take away a person's personal vote if they want to vote for someone who's termed out. I mean, I think the electoral, the election process determines when people should leave office uh, and people. Uh, don't need to be hampered by not electing who they want to elect because of some term limit based on age, term limits, or whatever it is. I mean, if they want to elect Marjorie Taylor Greene, then that's how democracy works. But for Supreme Court judges and justices and for appointed officials, term limits. We see how corrupt the Supreme Court has become. There should not be lifetime appointments for appointed officials. And I believe, well, now I've called for... um, Clarence Thomas to resign. I was the first one who called for that. You know? The Supreme Court is corrupt by corporations. I mean, they're bought and sold by corporations now, and you just look at their decisions. So we have to have this code of ethics, which we're working on now for the, for right now. But I think we need to expand the Supreme Court. I've been one who supported legislation uh, to uh, expand it, what the number is, the lawyers have to decide that. But I think I'm, by profession, my background is psychology, mental health, psychiatric, <laughs> social workers, <so> I understand. <laughs> but the lawyers will decide what it should be uh, in terms of how many. But I really think it should be expanded because the world is different. The country's changed now, and the Constitution doesn't stipulate how many Supreme Court justices there should be. So I think we should go back to the drawing board and look at that and expand the court, and we definitely need to have term limits for Supreme Court judges. 
appointed officials. All right. Um, who would you like to see in the House seat that you would leave open? Who are you endorsing for your replacement? I have not endorsed for my replacement. There's some great candidates who are running, and I know one of them personally who's uh, got a record, a public record, and uh, we'll see where that goes. But I think that uh, you have to find somebody who is um, progressive, who uh, has been in office, who you can determine by what they've done, what they will do in the future. And of course, uh, I know Latifah Simon very well, and she's running. And, and she is a great candidate. Uh, the close of filing is, I think, in December. So we'll see if anyone else uh, jumps in. But I think this, my district has some specific criteria. It's a very enlightened district like San Francisco is. And, and people know who they want and the type of representative they want. Are you nervous at all that um, the, the type of leader that your district wants is not the type of leader the state might go for? Do you know what I mean? Are you, are you concerned about maybe appealing to voters outside of the enlightened? <laughs> well, well, you would not believe the support I have in the Central Valley, for example. Hmm. I um, am the only Democrat on the Agriculture Committee of the Appropriations Committee. And I was in um, Modesto, Merced, Atwater, Tulare, Poplar, Fresno, Bakersfield, you name it. And I have a lot of support there. Food insecurity is rampant in the Central Valley. Poverty rates are off the scale in the breadbasket of America, really. Uh, so I've led on the Healthy Food Financing Initiative. I brought in resources for food deserts, for SNAP benefits. So they know me in the Central Valley. Not that I would, I'm gonna, not going to say I'm going to win in the Central Valley, but I'll take a large chunk. Dolores Huerta is helping me. Cesar Chavez's grandson is helping I have a lot of support there. And Bernie Sanders won the Central Valley. Uh, and uh, members of our revolution are helping me in this race, big time. So uh, I told you I have a lot of support in Anaheim and in Orange County. Uh, and people, California is a progressive state. It's multiracial. We have a good coalition together. And there are pockets of California which are pretty conservative. But I'm not going to campaign where I, again, how you use your resources to target to make sure you get your voters out to the polls. I know where my voters are and I have to make sure I get them out. And so I have in the uh, Riverside and San Bernardino, the mayor um, of Riverside is, has endorsed me. I had a fundraiser and a community event there last week. Uh, all over the <laughs> Inland Empire, plenty of support. You'd be, I hope you all go to my website. You'll see the broad base of support because people know when they meet me or if they learn about me, they know I, I really see them and that I want to make their lives better. And I've lived a lot of the experiences that many Californians have lived, and I want their lives to be better, and they know that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you got a plan. Yeah. Are members of Congress as weird privately as they are? Because, <laughs> you know, you watch and you go, you can't really, <laughs> you know, but, but, but I don't know. Okay. Don't I'm going to give you one story. I'm not going to mention his name. But he, he's a MAGA extremist Republican. And we were sitting on the floor together. You know, Democrats sit on this side, Republicans over there. We were sitting kind of in the middle working on something. And he had the nerve to say to me, 
well, you know, we've got a bunch of crazies over there on our side. (laughs) If I told you the name of this person, you would say, oh, my goodness. I was like, oh, boy. (laughs) Blink if it's Matt Gates. Just blink. Okay. Close. (laughs) But I'm just saying, and and I was... um, the teller, you know, when the speaker is uh, elected, mm-hmm. Democrats appoint two tellers, Republicans appoint two tellers. So I was one of the tellers the Democrats appointed and Joe Morelli out of New York. We sat there through 15 ballots mm-hmm. <laughs> and had a chance <laughs> to check everything out. And it is like bizarre. <laughs> and And what the sad part and the scary part is, we still don't know what the deals are that they cut with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Bo Baird and, and all of the extremists. But we're seeing now, and I, being on the Appropriations Committee, I'm very clear that they want to shut the government down. And that's I, I think that was part of the deal, quite frankly. And so it's it's really, um, you know, Democrats are fighting hard. This is a time I, we've had to fight so hard just to maintain uh, the uh Funding levels, for example, from last year and the year before, because we've delivered a lot. The infrastructure bill, the CHIPS legislation, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, all the COVID recovery. I mean, we've created jobs with, you know, the economic situation with cost of cost of living is still too high. But it's, you know, uh, it's coming. Uh, People are still hurting. But there are ways and strategies and legislation we have that we're fighting to make sure that the cost of living is reduced and that we deal with inflation. Biden has been great. And the House under Nancy Pelosi and uh, Democrats, we delivered. And so it's important that people really know that. And we keep repeating that. It's (laughs) Democrats that delivered and the Republicans show up and cut the ribbons as if they voted for the bills. And they don't. They don't vote for any of them. <laughs> I saw on Twitter, there's a Twitter rumor, and you can, uh, you don't have to, you know, answer this n- directly if you don't want to. Uh, but there's a Twitter rumor that Nancy Pelosi is, um, is backing Adam Schiff. Um, and I won't go into the reasons why people, I don't know, it's Twitter or X or whatever the hell. Um, and, but uh, is that your sense of things or are you looking forward to her support? Are you? Oh, no, she, she told me early before she even um, came public. Uh, support him. Everybody has a right to support who they want. And uh, she's supporting Adam Schiff. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All righty. This um, is politics. <laughs> it ain't basket weaving. Um, and she's still the greatest speaker ever. I mean, so, so I don't, I have no. <laughs> I still remember. So when I interviewed Jackie Spear with her exit interview, she told like the greatest story about there's this speaker's chamber. There's like a, a meeting room. I'm mm-hmm. sure you've been in there. Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of small room, almost like the, yeah. maybe the size of this stage um, that the speakers all, you know, sort of use their private room. And before she left um, and handed over the gavel to Kevin McCarthy, she had, um, she had uh, put a, I think it was like Susan B. Anthony and like some bunch of women pie. Yeah. She had a mural yeah. uh, 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 of like oh, yeah. great women in history. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Like, oh, yes. Here you go, Kevin. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, very smart. She knows what she's doing. <laughs> I was like, all right. Um, okay. So, yeah. So someone wants to, you to talk about your foreign policy experience because I, I think it's interesting that, um, you know, it's so hard to find people who are consistent. <laughs> Um, but you you voted against the 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 Iraq War authorization bill. Mm-hmm. You've also voted to 
get the U.S. troops out of Syria and also out of Afghanistan. Um, and so been pretty consistent on your on your views about, mm -hmm. you know, where the U.S. should be should be involved. And most recently, I think, against the um, sharing or uh, giving of cluster bombs to, to to troops in Ukraine. So can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that, how that would mm -hmm. those experiences in that perspective would would bear on your mm -hmm. your Senate career? Yeah. And I think, you know, people are always asking me to contrast myself with other candidates. And I think this is one area where the, it's pretty clear the contrast, uh, because I have a, a long history of being involved in national security and foreign policy issues, as well as domestic policy, and a couple of things that are important. First of all, I um, believe that the Pentagon has uh, too much money. They're $886 billion, right? And I have constantly tried to reduce the defense budget to a rational defense budget. And every year, I lead the effort to cut it by at least $100 billion. Now, we've learned, and this is very clear, $150 billion in waste, fraud, and abuse only. Uh, $150 billion. So you can just take that off. And, and so my part of what I have fought for, like Ron Delms did, is to have a defense budget that is rational, that ensures our national security, takes care of our troops, maintains our global leadership, the whole nine yards. You don't need $886 billion to do that. I chaired, uh, when we were in the majority, the subcommittee, it's like the Foreign Affairs Committee of the Appropriations Committee. First time an African-American ever chaired that. State and foreign operations. Development diplomacy was my mandate under my jurisdiction. I'm the uh, ranking member now. And what my whole goal has been is to rebalance our national security strategy. You know, we have development, the three legs of the stool, development, diplomacy, defense. My budget, and this was an increase that I fought for, it was just about 60 billion, and defense was like 800 and some billion, okay? And so it's like, come on. And so I fought to, and I got more. It was more, less than $60 billion before I chaired it. But you can see my framework and my perspective on national security and foreign policy has got to be about global peace and security. And we've got to lead with that. And, you, and the military officers always tell me, look, we need money to stop wars and to prevent war, I mean, to keep wars from breaking out. Mm -hmm. So we need more in the development accounts and in the diplomatic accounts and in the, I've been to Sudan many times, and the humanitarian accounts. I've been to Eastern Europe, Georgia, Ukraine. I've been to uh, uh, Lithuania, Poland, you name it. And uh, I've had a lot of experience dealing with the world in which we live. And I'm very clear uh, how fragile our democracy is. I'm very clear on that because I know what's taking place in the world with regard to the movements. I understand what white supremacy is. It's not just a U.S. deal. It's an international phenomena. And in fact, I know that we have got to get this defense budget under control so that we can have resources to lead on global peace and security strategies. And so that's where I'm coming from, and I've done a heck of a lot in, in countries that uh, never would have had a dime had I not fought for uh, development assistance, global health, education, women's health, the global gag rule, getting rid of that, and all of the efforts that really put America uh, as, as a country that 
the rest of the world would wants to deal with because we know China is is everywhere. And China is everywhere in Africa and the Caribbean. Why? The U.S. is missing in action. And so I try to get the U.S. government, USAID in our country to invest more uh, uh, in these countries uh, because that's how you deal with China. <laughs> you know, it's not like you have a stick. You You know, you can't force them out, but you can do the American thing if you will. But we've got a long way to go. I've been the representative to the United Nations uh, since President Obama was in. And it was so funny because uh, the president appoints, the speaker nominates, the president appoints the UN representative from the Democratic caucus and the Republican caucus. So I've been the one. And uh, Speaker Pelosi, <laughs> we had a press conference. He says, I'm going to tell you a secret. She says, I nominated her to be the UN representative, but Donald Trump appointed her. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so bottom line is, again, contrast me with other uh, the, my opponents. I know the United Nations system. I fought to make sure the UN associations are funded and that we fund the UN because they try to now trying to dismantle the United Nations, the U.S. is, and uh, trying to cut back on their dues. And so this is uh, a reason why I need to be in the Senate, because I understand <laughs> how foreign policy and national security works as a black African-American woman who's progressive. I know how to navigate this country and the world in which we live. And a Trump appointee. No, no, <laughs> Don't no, tell anybody. No uh, <laughs> all right. So final question here. We'll try to end on a happy note here. What is the most rewarding part of your job? These young people. Mm. I'm telling you. I have the Martin Luther, I founded Martin Luther King Jr. Freedom Center in Oakland in the 90s. And these are young people who were living on the edge. And you should, and the program is phenomenal. We've had young people come through the Martin Luther King Freedom Center, and they are lawyers now. Five or six of them come with me every year with our, John Lewis had the Civil Rights Pilgrimage, and so they would select five or six to come with me to go to Selma, Montgomery, Birmingham. And I've seen these young people. Now they're going to uh, Indian reservations, and they're doing humanitarian work civic education. And so these young people at the Martin Luther King Freedom Center and all these other groups that I work with young people give me a lot of hope. And I'm telling you all, you people get sort of uh, depressed right now after COVID and down and don't see hope. But talk to young people, engage with young people, because all they want is, a, is you to give them a little bit of hope. And they uh, are unbelievable. They came to me a couple of years ago, some California youth in high school and said, look, we're worried this planet is burning. We won't have a world when we grow up. Would you introduce a bill that we want to write with you to require climate, the climate emergency to be taught in schools? I said, sure. So we sat down and they wrote that bill. And they came to Washington and we introduced it with all these high school students. And they're building the co-sponsorship for members of Congress to sign on and how can members say no? So we're pushing the climate agenda <laughs> with our young people. So I, I'm just saying uh, young people, they give me a lot of hope and that's why they know I'm running for them, not for me. 
for this Senate seat because they are the ones that we have to see as uh, as our leaders really now. And we have to empower them to be leaders and we have to let them move. And I've had Justin Jones, I'll end with this. You, you know, Justin, one of the Tennessee three, right? Uh, in Tennessee, who was expelled. Well, Justin was my intern. Okay. Now, how, how good can it get? <laughs> Okay, so that's what makes me happy and hopeful. (laughs) All right, on that note, many thanks to Congresswoman Barbara Lee. All right, if you'd like to support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Melissa Kane. Thanks for coming out tonight. We will see you next time. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.